every podcast edit, in case you weren't already aware, is a personal battle with procrastination. This wouldn't be a thoroughly good classical music podcast if I didn't reveal that. The interviewing is kind of straightforward. It's just a conversation. Having to sit down and revisit that conversation and edit it down into something I want to listen to, I do this for myself, not for others, is what is the challenge. What have I said that I need to edit out? Where are the right places for the music? Where is the right point to bring things to an end? How much do I have to do? How little can I get away with? Then there are podcasts where I want to set aside time to listen in order to make sure that those things which have resonated with me are given prominence. So it is here. Soprano April Frederick joined conductor Kenneth Woods and the English Symphony Orchestra for a recording at Nimbus in Wirestone in the Wye Valley. Nimbus for me is a distant memory from right at the beginning of my career. Then conductor of the English Symphony Orchestra William Boughton told me on the bus journey there in late 1994 that Nimbus's USP was that they recorded with one microphone that what you heard was a representation, kind of, of what the audience might experience themselves had they been there. To be honest, I had no real sense of what he was telling me. I had no idea whether he was spinning me a line. I was young, and as I said in previous podcasts, there was a lot of noise in my head, despite the medication, at the time. But there's a hint of what he was talking about in this recording, released on the 1st of February 2021. I hear an event, an experience... And space. I hear all of that in the ambience. The arrangements of music by Wagner, Strauss, Humperdinck and Schubert were captured in July 2020, soon after the first Covid restrictions were eased, and soon after soprano April Frederick, who features in this recording, had recovered from Covid herself. In terms of texture, there's something of the moment too. Cut-down arrangements of works more familiar from symphonic renditions. There is something of the moment about these arrangements. These settings feel new and refreshing and close, almost as though you can touch them. They're not only pragmatic responses to present-day restrictions, but also heartfelt and real. And then there's April herself, softly spoken, gentle statements, carefully considered, strong. If ever there was a podcast interview that was both a joy to experience in the moment and is reflected in the editing process, then this would be it. I see pictures, I see books, I see a... Yeah, there are, there are, there are a lot of things, obviously. Ooh, now you're making me pick. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's funny, the, the thing which, the thing which actually leaps out to me is um, a book 
calls, which are sort of slightly obscured by the little uh, ship in the bottle, calls um, Half the Human Race by Anthony Quinn. And um, I guess the, things that, the thing I liked about it was that it's, it's, it's a novel about um, the suffragette movement and World War I. Uh, it, it took place in Caledonian and Barnsbury, where I used to live. So it was one of those um, novels that helped you to picture what an area that you lived in was like uh, in, in a pastime. And so that, that was quite interesting. But it was, and it was, there, there was a lot of detail in the learning historically, great characters. But also it was one of those, those sort of romances where there's a lot of missed um, missed opportunities and it's not sweet sweet where it's it just it felt very real to me somehow and so um, I don't know why that is one that always kind of comes back to my mind how did um, you how were you introduced to that did somebody introduce you to it or did you seek it out what was the story that led up to you getting it it is actually one of the only uh, things that I've ever bought because of an advertisement on the tube strangely so usually it is recommendations um, but yeah, I, it's, it's something about again the combination of historical detail and the um, that that period. And I, I I did my masters and and PhD on Abergurney, so I spent a lot of time thinking about World War One. Um, but I learned things I hadn't known. So uh, I hear an American accent, but I also have this idea that you spent a long time in London. Yes, yes. So I grew up in the Midwest of America in Wisconsin. Uh, but I've been here since 2003. Uh, this, this is what happens. I should have warned you. This is what happens. Basically, you ask one question, then it's just a series of nosy follow-up questions. So, you know, brace yourself. That's what this is going to be. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I know, well, I mean, I know more about the States now as a result of the transit, the pe relatively peaceful transition of power. Um, uh, but I know nothing about Wisconsin. Can you give me a primer about Wisconsin? Uh, yes, um, it became a state in the mid 1860s. I want to say 1865, <laughs> but I get a bit blurry on that. Um, one interesting little detail was um, that um, you may remember the opera by Douglas Moore called Ballad of Baby Doe. Uh -huh. And it was based on the, the actual sort of experience of a woman who married a, um, a silver baron. And so she's from Wisconsin. And just I remember looking at her Wikipedia entry and it's sort of saying that at the time you know that century that 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 wisconsin was still very much the wild west and um so that that was one of the first moments where it's it, i was reminded oh my goodness there's this entire history of my state of which i i know almost nothing and uh, the person who actually helped me to know more was gloria coates composer who lives in, in berlin so um it's um it is heavily wooded it's a lot like germany uh, which is probably why so many germans settled there uh, so there was um, the first there were the French trappers and then there were um, a lot of German immigrants, Polish immigrants, um, and that's, that's, that's the primary constitution. But uh, it is also known in political history uh, because uh, for 30 years, kind of the beginning of the 20th century, there was another party called the Progressive Party that was actually a viable alternative to Republicans and Democrats. And the federal government adopted a lot of its um, a lot of its uh, initiatives, things like hot school lunches, things like the satellite um, uh, university system, um, were all started in Wisconsin. And I only found out this as, as an adult, you know, within the last 10 years. And so I always thought, oh, Wisconsin's a bit boring. Man. <laughs> and, 
it was it was actually Gloria who helped me to realize also there was this huge swathe of people who moved in the wake of the 1848 revolutions. And so they came bringing the height of German romantic culture with them. And so they brought their music, they brought their books. And, and I suddenly thought, this is why Wisconsin is also quite artsy. So there are a lot of little, little orchestras, little choirs, um, little theater groups. And you know, there's, 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 a lot going on, even though it did feel like the back of beyond sometimes. Because it took on a lot of immigrants in its past. You know, it, yes. brought, it brought European culture to, to, to the West Coast. Or uh, West to, of America, rather. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, what was your relationship with, you know, how did you see Wisconsin as a, um, as a kid? Did you sort of, did you want to get out of it? Or did you, at what point did you, you know, connect with your state? I, 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 I think that I am... Um... I did enjoy the place that I grew up was also very beautiful. It was a, a retreat center called um, Whispering Pines Retreat, and so it was kind of ninety acres of pine plantation and hardwood. And... Oh, it sounds hideous. <laughs> yeah, and it was uh, it was it's a, a, there's some quite interesting history around it as well. A German entrepreneur who essentially revolutionized the milk bottling process um, had this as his hunting cabin, and then they built built a house there, and um, so that's it's where I grew up. Uh, so my particular part of it was very very beautiful. Um, I. Um, had the opportunity to go to Ireland several times as a child um, in, on, on holidays with my family because so we had friends there. And I think that that ignited my uh, my breadth of mind to think, oh, there's a world. And so <laughs> we've wandered around Neolithic tombs and you know, ruined castles. It, it as, a, as, as, a, as a kid, did you have a sense of um, the scale of the state such that when you went to Ireland, you you were aware of actually how small... I mean, that transition from the States mm. to Ireland would be like, we've come to an island, it's really small, it's too small. That's my assumption. Did you have a, a sense of that, that difference in scale? I, I think that came later. I mean, we, we had family out west, you know, so we would oftentimes drive out there. So it was a 20-hour drive and we would sort of, you know, travel over the, over the course of time of, of three days, oftentimes. Um, and I, But I think I loved the smallness. I think I still do. Um, I think that there's an aspect in which I find, I almost find the breadth a little bit frightening sometimes, or you know, it, I've, it, it sort of feels like I, I, I want to know where the edge is. And, and London and, and England and, and Europe feels more cosy, I think somehow, because it's more parametered and, and, and also obviously layered in the history, which is one of the things I adore. It's know. closer to the sea. You know, there's not, not quite so far to go to the sea and therefore the end, yes. <laughs> I think. Uh, so you came to the UK in 2003? Yes, to do a master's at the Royal Academy of Music. OK, and then presumably you just stayed because... I'm being terribly yeah. nosy. I'm sorry. I'm. I just can't help myself. But uh, no, no, why, no, no. why did you stay I, yeah. after the masters? I, I I fell in love, you know, right. with, with England. I think. I mean, I'd always loved the, the literature and culture, um, and you know, I'd I'd just fallen in love with the people, with the country, and um, I had come partially because I didn't want to get shoehorned into opera, and uh, I felt, and I think was right that there was a much better infrastructure here to learn other forms of music and and uh, become established in them and um i've certainly as a result been able to have an, an incredible breadth and diversity of opportunities that never never would have been possible in the u.s um but yeah so i i um after the masters i um 
nearly did an opera course, uh, but ended up on the PhD instead. Because I thought, well, I might as well have something to show for myself afterwards. And if the singing thing doesn't work out, you know. Um, but I think also it's always been a tussle between words and music for me. Um, I'm, a, I'm a poet. I, you know, I just I love I love words a lot. And uh, so the PhD was like feeding another part of me. And I think that in some ways it's it's always been this again this push and this pull i did a, a minor um in english in uni and so it's always sort of been this tussle and um i love song in particular that is one of my great loves so one of the the beautiful things about me being able to do discs like this um, because there are a lot of great texts and also you have you have an entire world in every single song period well mm. when you look back at since 2003 what would you pick out as the biggest challenge um, I think I think it's partially the sort of cobbling together that's politely known as a portfolio career <laughs> um, you know which I think I sort of think of it's it's basically a, a patchwork quilt yes and you know so it's just finding out the different pieces that that make a, a livable whole um, I remember that when I decided to do the PhD, my teacher um, had just sat down with me and said, you know that you're going to see some of your contemporaries surpass you in, um, in their, uh, their profile, in, in the profession. Are you okay with that? That, that, you know, that they will have different experiences. And um, I, th I, th you know, I thought, yep, that's fine. But, you know, but she also <laughs> said, you will be a richer performer because of it. And that's also true. That is, so I think there have been moments when, when you sit and think, oh, did I make the right decision? Yes. But then I consider what my experiences helped me to bring to the music that I perform and to every context that I perform in. And every time I go through that process, I think absolutely yes. And I think that, um, this question of regret of the way of, of how you deal with what's happened, what hasn't is for me sort of fundamental to the way that I approach, especially the Strauss, which is one of my kind of oldest and closest friends on this disc. I performed it eight times with orchestra. This was the eighth time. And every time has been very different. And, you know, I think there's, there's so much in it um, about coming to the point of realizing there are things you will never do or be. And, and just thinking, how do I make my peace with this? Is this okay? 
And uh, so I, th I think that was definitely, you know, th th those have been some of the challenging moments to just hold what has been possible, what has and hasn't happened in my hands. But also I think a fundamental shift was learning to embrace gratitude for what I have had. And, and to, again, to me, this is Strauss because it's the, it's, it's the moment in, um, in September, first of all, you know, when it, when it says, Sommerlichwelt um, erstaunt und matt in den sterbenden Gartentraum. You know, summer looks astonished and weak at its dying dream of a garden. And when you, that moment when you suddenly realize the season has shifted and you linger by the roses, you know, lange nach bei den Rosen bleibt ihr stehen. And you, know, you, you take time you know, and there's the gratefulness. But then also there's the moment in, in um, Im Abendrot where, you know, you're sort of saying, you know, um, you know, um, the, the, the air is darkening um, and it's, it's sort of happening already. So there, there's still light on the mountaintops and the larks are enjoying the last thermals, but it's already shadow where you are. And it's that moment of watching the larks fly and thinking that that's the moment of thinking, oh, oh, should I have done X? You know, could I become X? What about them? And then there's the moment, tritt her und lass sie zieren. Remain here and let them fly. You know, bald ist es Schlafenzeit. Soon it will be time to sleep. But there's, the, so to me, it's, it's been these two pillars of sort of saying time is short, by all means, make the most of everything. Love what, you know, the, the, the thousandfach, you know, the thousandfold living that you have been given. And love the roses, remain where you are and just let, let what might have been fly. I'm, I, I understand totally the thing about gratitude. I'm wondering whether the Strauss informed that shift in your thinking or whether you came to the Strauss as a result of something else shifting your thinking. I think that I think the Strauss has been, it's been a sort of pedal note, if you will, um, in, in, in that shift in thinking. So I first sang it with the Chester Philharmonic in 2014. Um, I was, um, still working part-time for an energy price reporting agency at that stage. What? Uh, an energy price reporting agency? Reporting agency. Wow, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that, that um, sounds like a stopgap to me. 
Well, it was meant, you know, I, I went for two weeks and stayed for six years. Oh, my goodness me. You must have really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, but, well, it's the reason I'm here. You know, I was right, able okay, to yeah. get my residency because of it. And so I remember sitting in the foyer and writing down this diary date, talking with the conductor. And, well, the first time I sang it was this kind of slightly thunderous experience. One of those strange times when everybody in the room feels the same way. And you know, we were all just a bit speechless, like something of great sort of spiritual and emotional power had, had occurred that day. And so I think that obviously cemented it in my experience. And so it's been a, it's been a pilgrimage piece. Like um, every New Year's Eve, I tried to listen to the last four movements of Muller Symphony 3. And um, with us, sorry, the last three movements, really. Um, and then um, that, and so it's, it's, and to me, the Strauss is like that. Every time I sing it, it's a, where have I journeyed? What have I learned since then? Um, but I think, yeah, that it, it's it, it's this constant reminder. Um, and I mean, I suppose you know, my faith has informed that in the works of a woman named Anne Voskamp, who's kind of been uh, written a lot of quite interesting things about her own journey with gratitude, um, having experienced some quite difficult things in her life. Um, and I think that that's, that it definitely, working with the Strauss, and it's just such glorious music as well. Every time I sing it, I I just think, um, yes, this is this is beautiful. This is such a privilege. But also like to know it's it's on so many people's like Desert Island Discs selection that it's it is so beloved. And does that it, make it? A, does that make it a? Does that make it a personal piece uh, from a from a performance perspective? Um, or does it make it, make it a daunting prospect because so many people uh, hold it so dear? Do you get the distinction I'm making? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think I have I have such a personal relationship with it um, that that helps. And so, yeah, I think there was an aspect in which I sort of thought, ooh, how do you approach this? But also, the, the, there, there's a lot technically to keep you busy, you know, right, when you're doing right, okay. Um, but also, you know, I always find the more you dwell in the words and the meaning, the more the technical things, you know, uh, once you've done your due diligence, you know, tend to kind of take care of themselves. So that's about that. That's something about focus, isn't it? It's about, you know, in, in the in the moment of performance, it's focus on on the, the meaning and then everything else will sort of magically take care of itself. Yes, when something that's often been said of me in performance is, is, is gosh, she really lives it. And but also I, I don't see the point of doing doing otherwise. <laughs> and um, just thinking of what you were saying about people sharing their passions, I, I think that um, I think that folk, especially and and singer songwriters, do this brilliantly, where they they tell stories. It's all about the fabric of life, and so is classical. But if we if we treated concerts that same way of let let me let me open the door and share a bit of my passion with you. Then, then it would live for everyone because, as you say, passion is contagious. Mm. And so, I think one of the people that I really admire for that is Yo-Yo Ma, who is, I think, been great at just kind of bringing in all kinds of people. Yes. Um, yep. And his little phrase, uh, "Nothing to prove, something to share," is something that's you know it's given me, uh, um, I suppose, a, a lot of freedom. And um, so, yeah. So that I mean, the Strauss was kind of definitely my my first, um, my, my first real acquaintance with this um with it with this program my first touch point and um but as um as ken woods was reminding me um it's it, it's an interesting program because it, it it sort of approaches things from the beginning and end of life 
and you know, it's always this reminder that life is precious. And um, um, but also, I suppose my um, this year, my relationship with this piece has been interesting because it was the first piece that I or it was the last piece I performed before lockdown and the first I performed after it. I'm right in saying that I I think I'm right about this, that you had COVID, didn't you? I did. Yeah, right. Um, I, I'm, I didn't get a test because at that stage you were only t- being tested if you were hospitalized. Right. Um, but I'm 95 percent sure that I got it right at the beginning of lockdown. Um, and I, I had it kind of badly enough to take me out of commission totally for a week and then the fatigue for uh, the remainder of a month. Um, what were the, uh, without wishing to sound like I'm turning this into a sort of looking at a car crash um, you know, or rubbernecking or anything, but what was the experience like? Because, you know, my impression of it is shaped, frankly, by the media. And I don't know, you know, and, and I think it would be fair to say that at the beginning of the lockdown process, we were sort of all led to believe, look, if you get it, it's sort of like a mild flu, um, unless you're vulnerable. Um, but you had a month of fatigue, so that doesn't sound like mild flu at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, um, for me, um, I, when, when I sort of realised, so I, I began with, with kind of fever and chills and then, you know, and, and, and headache. But then when I started to get that sort of slight tightness of chest, I sort of thought, okay, this this is what this is. And it very much felt like a kind of long, dark tunnel. Like I, I just was just looking at it and thinking, okay. And I, you know, I'd just seen a really vigorous friend, you know, be laid low for you know, four, four days and finished shivering with fever. Um, who's you know, very, very fit and 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 young, and I just thought, okay, this is so I need to take it seriously. And also, my own teacher, um, Jacqueline Straubinger Bremer, had nearly died from a, a different sort of, um, I suppose, SARS-CoV variant um, back in two thousand and, and oh gosh, I don't remember what's the date? Ah, I've lost it's it. okay, it's fine. Um, but... Two thousand and four, five, I think. Um, but it ended her career. And um, and so I'd known, right, these things can be serious. So I think there was a moment, it was almost like someone sits you down and says, do you have your affairs in order? It is possible you will die. You were frightened. Um, there, yeah, there was that moment. Um, I, think, I think having a faith was very helpful at that point in time. And I remember my parents praying with me over the phone and, and, and so saying, Lord, I ask that you would spare her life. And interestingly, after that point, my symptoms didn't continue in the kind of pulmonary respiratory tract, but they actually went towards the, at that time, lesser known gastric um, cluster. And, you know, so at that time I was thinking, is, is this what I have? No one's talking about this. And so I was having to kind of yes, do my own yes. research while lying in bed and be like, is this actually what I have? And then thinking, oh yes, yes, this is a thing. Um, and, you know, so, but I, so I think, especially those first two days, as I was just kind of watched the thermometer just climb up and up, you're just, you know, lying in bed and just that sense of helplessness there was a real moment of just sitting with mortality and saying, if, if this is the end, what do I make of my life? What, you know, what do I feel I'm satisfied with? What, um, what, you know, what, what does life look like from, from where I sit right now? And I, I do feel like it has stamped me differently. And, um, you know, so I've actually come out with a very strange sense of freedom, feeling like, what, why, why did I care about so many things that that used to kind of chase me, but just a feeling of the preciousness of life. 
but also just weirdly yeah just the sense of mortality has has given me a grounding and a freedom and so approaching the Strauss was different this time and just feeling like it will you know I wasn't ventilated I wasn't hospitalized and you know I've had friends who've had it a lot worse but the fatigue has followed me mm. and so and there will be times when uh, it would it would I'll be fine for a long period of time and then I'll you know I can never quite tell what will trigger it, but then I'll just hit the wall and, and, and my chest will feel the same as it did then, and it will just be, I just have to stop for a bit. It was, I mean, it, it, it was one of those very, very strange moments. But I think also, you know, the voice in, in many ways is such a fragile um, gift to have. It is vulnerable to many things. And so I think there's an aspect in which I've always tried to hold it lightly and just sort of say, you know, you can, you can take care, but you, you never know for how long you have it. Mm. And you could get a, you know, you could get a brain tumor that's... Mm. Um, that threatens it. And I've had uh, two different people, you know, of my acquaintance who've, who've had that. And that it's, you know, it's, it is to be used as a gift for however long you have it. And even, you know, my, my grandfather was, was a wonderful singer, which I actually found out quite late in my life, strangely. And um, he had Parkinson's at the end and, you know, so sang until Parkinson's essentially ended that, his ability to, to, to sing uh, with control. 
and yeah, so, so I think it's it, it was a moment of just sitting with it and remembering again, like what a gift, but what a gift to be alive. And also to remember that you are always more than the sum of your parts. And I think that as a singer, it, it's, it can be a big temptation to put your worth in your singing. And I think that it's, it's just so important to just remember you are more than the sound you make. The sound that you make should be infused with all that you are. It is, it is a carrier, an envelope for this amazing transaction that happens, you know, between you and your audience. But I also think, you know, we as a culture have oftentimes encouraged passive listening as versus active listening. Yes, yeah. And uh, so I remember in one of your last episodes, you were talking about kind of recovering the joy of active listening during yeah, lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just think it, I, uh, as soon as you stumble on that, and I'm speaking for myself here, but I think as soon as you stumble on the joy of active listening to any music, it's, it's not just a particular genre, then it becomes hugely addictive because, because it becomes this sort of music that is creating a, a 3D image in front of you. And then you become, I, I find myself getting very obsessed about um textures and and sort of like the feel of um it's in the richard stamp thing with the richard stamp thing i'm really selling the series um about aaron copeland's clarinet concerto i became utterly obsessed by the touch of or, or the sensation of uh an orchestration yeah. on the skin even though i was listening to it I I adore that and it's a phenomenally difficult when 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 I speak to sort of people who don't normally listen to classical music like some of the people that I work with I often try and explain that to them and they just look at me with complete like what are you saying and I think that the it's because they haven't experienced it in that way um and that's okay too but I I think that that active listening process is is a gateway to this remarkable thing that, that that carries you in a um in a heightening of the awareness i mean that's that's essentially what we're what we're both talking about but coming at it from slightly different angles